welcome everyone to another episode of Ego Check with the IDM. My name is Michael Malin, and today I am joined by Susan Morris, who's a fantasy author and editor known for her uh, acclaimed writing advice column over on Amazon's Omnivoracious blog. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. And uh, she's also been working on Forgotten Realms novels for Wizards of the Coast and does some work for Monty Cook Games. Um, she's published books on her own, has designed Dungeons & Dragons for Kids, and uh, several years ago was an industry insider guest of honor at Gen Con. Uh, actually, the only year I've been at Gen Con, you were there as a guest of honor. So oh, hey. um, we may have crossed paths briefly in the past. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so it sounds like you've had quite a diverse uh, background being involved in, in gaming. How did all that get started? Uh, you mean like when I was a kid or like professionally? Uh, you know, let's go in the way back machine, starting as a kid. <laughs> so um, my parent, my dad was a video gamer, and so when I was a kid, I was a born backseat gamer. And so I used to sit behind my dad every night, watch him play video games, and tell him how he should play. Um, <laughs> okay. And eventually he got really tired of this. And so we got to play the video games. Uh, and so we started with, like, Eye of the Beholder and Ultima Underworld uh, and all the old classics. Um, and then I realized that, hey, you know, this isn't just video games. These are actually, like, Eye of the Beholder in particular is based on a role-playing game. And I went in the library, and I used to love monsters. So I actually found the Monstrous Manual, second edition. Uh, and I, I was so excited because I got to read about all the history of all the monsters and everything. And that's actually kind of where the ideas for the Practical Guide series that I wrote for Mirrorstone um, came from is, you know, the idea of the fact that kids just love monsters and being able to actually delve into, like, their histories and their personalities and what it's like to interact with them. And, of course, then I had to play the game. But my parents were not so keen because okay. my parents were, you know, my, my dad loved video games and was all about us video gaming. Uh, but he wasn't sure about this meeting random people at a game store when you're, like, you know, 10 or less to play video to play actual games. So I started out with play by email. Uh, and I did that for a while. And then I decided that I knew enough to try and start uh, my own games. And uh, I ended up doing a research paper to convince my parents that I should be allowed to game with other people in life uh, and okay. uh, managed to convince them. And so I ended up finding I did find a game through a game store. Um, and it was a couple of amazing college students, just graduated college students. The DM was a pastry chef. Um, they did a homebrew game based on the uh, Vlad Teltos books, okay, uh, which was super fun. Um, and he helped me through DMing my first game, which I did for uh, my Girl Scout troop, which I just pulled them all in and made them my group. So uh, after that, I gamed through middle school and high school. High school was mostly switched to White Wolf for a while, and then in college went back to D&D, as well as White Wolf. Uh, and then when I graduated, I knew I wanted to work in um, publishing, and I still loved gaming. And Wizards of the Coast had a novels editor opening. Uh, and, of course, I'm an English major. I love writing and editing and such. That's something else I've done my whole life. And I applied, and uh, I got it. And so that started my career in gaming. Excellent. So what was it like to kind of transfer into that more professional role of gaming when it was more of a hobby for you? Uh, it was it was really 
really funny. Like for the one thing, like I was working in editing, which is something that I have a very, you know, I was educated in. So I have a firm background there. But then on the gaming side, it was really different playing games at Wizards of the Coast than it was playing in my free time. For one thing, like playing in college, like I don't know about you, but my games, they went hours, right? <laughs> like you play all night until sure. the small hours of the morning. Mm -hmm. uh, and at Wizards of the Coast, I mean, you had lunch hour games. So you play every day, but you play for an hour, right? Mm -hmm. Or you play once a week for two hours or something. Uh, but you do play during the day, like at work, mm -hmm. uh, because it was part of the job. The other thing I noticed is that that's the first time I realized that there are a lot of different types of gamers, because obviously I kind of ended up playing with people who had similar ideologies to me. Um, and my groups were all heavily dominated by women. Uh, I loved playing, especially introducing new gamers, because I love that sense of wonder that you get the first time you could play a game. Mm -hmm. uh, like, new players that first year is just like the best in terms of getting to introduce them to all the classics, all the best stuff about D&D. &D. And so, like, and I was also always in very role-play-heavy groups, uh, and so to suddenly be in a, my first group that I was in at Wizards of the Coast was much more tactical. Okay. Uh, and so it was people who were playing and it was more, it was less about the role playing. And I'm not going to say it was role playing ROLL or anything, right? We were still playing our characters, mm -hmm. but that one was very much about the tactics okay. um, as opposed to being about the difficult choices you make. Uh, but then I played in another one that was very much about exploring strange places. So I felt like it was very, they were very... I was uh, shown more of the breadth of what's out there in terms of gaming. And, of course, the other thing is, you know, you're often working on – you're often gaming in something that's not final. Uh, so, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes things are a little less balanced. But that never really bothered me. Yeah, and one of the things I wanted to kind of pick your brain about here was, you know, designing around different player types and homebrewing adventures. So you kind of mentioned some of the different types you, we can sometimes run into as DMs. So you have – the folks who like the tactical combat and are all about miniatures and terrain and those types of effects and features and other players who, you know, like more of the improv or the role playing and the, mm -hmm. the drama components. And then you also mentioned like the exploration and they often refer to those now as like those the three pillars of, of D&D. So, oh, really? yeah. you know, as you were kind of starting off or like how what what's the best way to appeal to each of those groups and how do you blend them together? Uh, well, I think part of it is kind of recognizing what you have in your group to start with. And I do like to, when I'm forming a group, I do like to try and get a balance because I think that all of the different types of players, like, they all have a role. But if you have a whole bunch of people who are incredibly into um, the role playing and, like, uh, really thinking through every possible angle, then you're never going to have as many accidents. You all the, like, you're never going to get into random situations the way you would when you have like a risk taker in your group who likes to, you know, that guy who will always push the red button if there's a red button, right? <laughs> sure, sure. Like, What's this fun. lever do? Yeah. Right. But if you have a whole group of risk takers, you're probably going to want to cut your hands off um, because it's just like it's – you would have no continuity. So I think it's worth having – like when I play, I usually try and have like one person who's a leader who kind of keeps the group together and keeps them focused uh, without being too obnoxious. Uh, and this this person can be like a rules lawyery type that's repurposed, but they can also just be an experienced player who really likes seeing the result of whatever storyline you have. Um, I like having an explorer type who will make sure that any details I put in, they'll pull out. Because I love having layered games where 
depending on like what you choose to ask and what you choose to look at, you'll get different stuff out of it. And so having an explorer type means that you'll, they'll lovingly, they'll comb through all that, right? They'll, they'll get your whole uh, plot and your whole world. Uh, then you have the role player because you have to have at least one person who's willing to talk to NPCs. Because otherwise, like, everyone just sits and looks at each other for a long time before they decide who has to talk. And then they're like, well, you're a cleric. Well, you're a paladin. You have a higher charisma. Mm -hmm. um, so it's good to have one of those. And you do want that risk taker to press, press a red button. Uh, and then it's, it's always good to have someone who helps with the continuity of, you know, like, coming up with the mythos of the group, right? Like, the story of the group. The person who remembers what happened before and makes it feel like a coherent narrative. And you'd think that's the DM, but I feel like almost always it's a storyteller, and that same storyteller is one of the people who kind of helps with the out-of-game cohesion with the group. Um, so I do look for that. But, you know, you can have different amounts of those, but I do mm -hmm. like to have all – I feel like a balanced group uh, is good for the longevity of the campaign. Um, but even if you have, like, all red button pressers, like, once you recognize or, like, what people are looking for, like, do they like the combat? Do they like combat if it's a certain way but not if it, say, goes on too long? Or if it doesn't have tactically interesting things, do they not like it? Like, learning what they like and what they don't like is going to allow you to design around them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the sooner you know both, like, kind of what they're looking for and how they act, I guess, those are the two things I look for. That's how you know how to design for them. Yeah. And with depending on the group that you're playing with, I can see, like, in groups I've played in where, like, I know the people, I've been friends with them for 5, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. Like, you kind of know going into the game, like, okay, I know what this person enjoys. I know what style of player they are. Um, mm -hmm. But then you have certainly other groups where it's more, like, you don't know the people or it's friend, oh, yeah. friends of friends. And how do you go about, before a campaign or an adventure, like gauging what people are about and what fuels their gameplay. So for me, it kind of depends on if you're talking about like a one shot with random people or if you're setting up for a campaign. Okay. When I'm setting up for a campaign, the character creation process gives me some insight because, uh, for instance, in, because I homebrew, I allow them to help like shape the cultures that they come from and the places they come from so that we get like, if they have some insight on what type of story they want to play. So like, for instance, in my current campaign, you know, I had an empire, and it wasn't originally evil in any way. But the gnome character, as she was forming it, decided that she really wanted to play this resistance story, basically. And so all of a sudden, they became oppressive of gnomes. And, you know, obviously, after I get these, these storylines from everyone, I find a way to weave it all together to make a coherent world, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, like, that way I know, okay, so she's looking for... She's looking for a little bit more of the role playing. She wants something that has story depth, and that's going to be important to her. And so throughout that process, and you'll hear someone else who's like, well, I really wanted uh, – there was all these stories about how I was going to become really powerful, but then they kicked me out of wizard school or something, and so now I am struggling to survive. And so that's a very different arc, and that's someone who's going to – they're going to be more looking to – get more powerful and get more tools. And that's, that's what they want to focus on is more combat and things like that. And so, you know, you get a lot of hints through character creation there and through just talking to them mm -hmm. and listening to their stories. Like the more you listen to your players about the things that they have enjoyed in the past, the games, even if they play video games before, but not like RPGs, mm -hmm. you get from like what, like if they're a Skyrim fan, you know something about them already. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, with a pickup group, I think that you can do a couple ways. One is, you know, 
chatting ahead of time, figuring out what video games they like, so that you'll know those things, like the Skyrim thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing is that when I design for a pickup group, I generally try and design something that has something for everyone. And then I just, as soon as I figure out in the beginning what they glom on towards, I just focus on those things. Okay. Um, so it sounds like you kind of leave some flexibility. Oh, yeah. Sure. I think that the best game is a flexible game. Mm-hmm. Have there been times where there's been a conflict amongst those factions in the group of, you know, the role players want more of X or the people who want more of a tactical experience want something different? And do you sense that tension kind of growing during a game ever? Um, I'd say the biggest tension I feel is between the risk takers and the storytellers okay. uh, or the, the role players, because you'll have the person who really wants to talk their way out of a situation and the person who just wants to draw steel, right? And so the people who want to talk their way out can get really frustrated with the person who wants to do something crazy or get started in combat or really does not enjoy that talking aspect. Um, and obviously, it's easier for the risk taker to subvert the narrative than it is for the talkers, the people who are actually enjoying talking to the NPCs to do so. So I'd say that's probably the greatest sort of tension. Uh, also, I mean, always there's a little bit of tension with the leader if the leader is not allowing people to explore enough. Mm-hmm. Leader explore. I mean, I think there's tensions between all of them, right? Mm-hmm. Because like the leader is like, here's the plot. We have to chase it, right? And then the explorer is like, but look, there's this flower and it's super cool. It eats things if you throw it in them, right? And so like you've got that tension because the leader wants to pull everyone ahead and not deviate and not give time to like do the side plots or to explore the town you're in or anything. And the explorer who wants to pick up every single rock and like look at it and see if it's special. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that ties into something I have in my mind when you were talking about homebrewing adventures and not relying on published content. I think mm-hmm. I think for the most part as a, as a DM, certainly in recent years with 4th edition and uh, the new latest edition, 5th edition, mostly play D&D, and relying on the published adventures and even tweaking them here and there, often you have like a few hooks to get people into the adventure and get things started. And like the last two campaigns I've run, I've noticed it's like pulling teeth to get the players huh. to want to, well, why would I go to this town and help these people? Like, I don't care about them. Like, yeah. it's, and you, with the character creation, I've tried to tie them into those events. But when you mm-hmm. sit down at the table and, there's a decision where they have to place themselves in danger for some reason. It's a lot of, why am I doing this? Yeah. It sounds like your method of just relying on homebrew kind of gets over that hurdle. It, it really helps because you get to figure out what they want ahead of time. And the quest is about figuring out how they get what they want. And if they do get what they want, mm-hmm. right? Like, cause it's a journey. <laughs> so not everyone yes. gets exactly what they want, but like they are pursuing what they're interested in rather than, well, here's the guy with the quest marker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you can also, I've, I've definitely done the thing where stealing from Skyrim or something, they're thrown in jail and they escape or someone steals their stuff. That's a great motivator. People want their stuff, right? <laughs> people like, like their, they like their equipment list. Yes. Right. So you can do things that like drive people together naturally. But the best thing I think is if you find something they're all interested in and you give them all a reason to move forward together. And, and so on the front end, like how do you prepare for that? How do you set up your world and what, what goes into your phases of starting a new campaign with either a group of people you know or like more of a one-shot? With a one-shot, it's usually ba- it's in kind of entirely different than my campaigns because my campaigns are incredibly based on like whatever group of people that I'm 
choosing to do it for. I usually do one shots or most of my one shots are more pickup games mm-hmm. rather than with the exception I do like one I did a one shot Halloween game for my group like and things like that, oh, right? And so then you then then you specifically pull in their characters. Yeah, and I did a I did the was it? It was last year. It wasn't the Rage of Giants, it was the Demogorgon year for D&D. Mm-hmm. I did their playing for Children's Hospital. Cool. Uh, cool. Where you do a one-shot for that. So, like, the one-shot for that was, like, very based on pulling in the metagame in a fun way. Everyone says metagame like it's a dirty word, but it can be really fun to play with the things people know and the things they don't know because they know you're not going to play it straight if you're playing with that. So you can play on, like, a narrative level as well as playing on the metagame level and engage them in both ways. And that can be really fun for really experienced players. When I'm starting a campaign... Uh, it's less like a short story, and it's more like uh, figuring out who the players are, what they're looking for, and then also like what I'm looking for, because I'm going to be spending so much time on this. Homebrewing, I mean, it is more time-consuming. You're going to be, you're not relying on, you don't have to do as much research in some ways, but you really have to come up with everything yourself, which means that you want to make sure that it's something that you're really excited about. So for me, I figure, okay, what kinds of ideas am I looking to explore? What kinds of terrain and places do I want to explore? Uh, what ki- what do I want the feel of this game to be like? Like I was thinking recently, I was talking with one of my players. I had this idea for a, a very much more high-level politics and machinations social game okay. in D&D. And it would be an entirely different game because it just wouldn't work with the setup here. You'd want to, if I were doing that, I would start with, okay, I want the feel to be mostly... You know, there's a bunch, there's NPCs, but there's players and they all have different politics. And it's how does, how do they get what they want in that situation? Which means I would need to create a complex political situation and I'd need to create history uh, to give everything context. Uh, And then I'd need to figure out, you know, how to create an interesting balance so that no one can just dominate. And so you would start from that angle. Mm -hmm. For this time, for this type of campaign, the one I did, I was like, well, I love undead. I'm playing with them. Uh, and I really wanted complex moral decisions because I'm a Skyrim player, and that's one of the things they do best. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I designed a, a layered history that would deal with that, and I wanted to deal with uh, lots of different factions that you could move up in and that would give you special perks and that would change the way you interact with the world. So I created like you know, a thieves guild with different symbols on houses and stuff. So you, you can, if you know that, you can figure things out that way. And you know, a mages guild and all these other things that have, when you're a part of them, it changes what you notice about the world around you. Yeah. And so you're, I mean, it really sounds like you're spending a lot of time creating lore, history, background. How do you keep all that organized? Is it just stored in your brain, or do you chart it out? How does that work? Well, I mean, it's you mainly want like points of reference. Like you don't actually have to write everything out if you know it. But I do have like a I wrote a bunch of stuff just in a Word document and I have it in a binder for reference. It is mainly figuring out what type of thing, right? So you could be like, well, this is basically War of the Roses era England or something and, you know, work from there. Okay. And so once you know the basics, you can, and as long as you write down the changes you make while you're playing, you don't have to write down every single thing. So what I usually do is write in arcs. So I'll come up with like, all right, so, you know, I have these three plot arcs that can intersect the little plots that the characters are doing. And so like, you'll have the big plot about the undead breaking out from the earth and you'll have another plot about the rebellion to the empire. And you'll have a third plot about um, this extinct race that's whose uh, artifacts 
are being used by the Empire that are provoking the undead or something. And so you'll figure out the entry points for the characters on each of those as they interact with them. And that provides the structure for integrating the world into the plot. And so what is it like for you when like, you have all these ideas and these worlds, you're creating all these plot lines that possibly intersect, and the mm-hmm. players go in a direction that, of all the ideas you came up with, like they go in a direction that you didn't even consider? And <laughs> It's actually never happened. Um, okay. And the reason, the reason is that I design possibilities like a, like a spider, but I don't actually design based on expectations of what they'll do. Okay. And so I basically design scenarios that are reactive to the players. Um, and I'm also, like, I, I do have good players that want to explore what's going on. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so I, I've actually never had that problem. Okay. That's ex- So in terms of you kind of talked about, like, preparing for scenarios, like, well, even in that example you just provided, like, what might be some of the things that you would just anticipate and be ready for? Well, for instance, uh, I create a character, and I know – I create characters and NPCs. I create the, say they're in a town or something, Mm -hmm. right? And so you have that scenario. And so you create the characters and the NPCs. You create what they want and basic personality. And honestly, I steal these personalities from like, uh, if you ever play Fire Emblem, there's, they have like 20 characters in each one, Mm -hmm. right? And so you can just graft personalities on them so you know how they would react in various situations. And it gives you a way to play a character that acts as a real person and not as like a, a DM figure, right? Um, and so you can steal them from any game you play or any movie you see. You just fit in character personalities. Um, and so then you have a world that's reactive to what the players do. Uh, and then I would have events, and I have a list of events that I can use to either provoke the characters into action or nudge them to a certain thing uh, if they're not noticing things. But I don't necessarily use all of the events. And so it's kind of like you have the ability to nudge them into your plot or not. And then, of course, I have artifacts and things that they can find. And those also will lead them in a certain direction or not. Okay. But I'll change, for instance, if I need an event to happen somewhere else, I can change it and make it happen there. Um, or if I need them to find something that they're not finding, I can change how they get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, so- it sounds like you, your system has been honed over many years of practice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think just like... I think it really helps to learn that I'm not trying to lead them down a particular story. I'm trying to tell a good story with them. And so it doesn't, the eventual shape will be what I want it to be because you can, of course, box them in when you need to for an important moment, right? Mm -hmm. But as long as it's a fun story and everyone enjoys it and it has some kind of shape, then it doesn't matter if you told the story that was in your head or not. And so your, your background in doing more of, um, you know, homebrewing and this kind of flexibility of working with the, the specific group of players and, and, you know, having adventures that way, how has that kind of shaped your opinions of the, the published content from, you know, like companies like Wizards of the Coast? And I know you've been on that end, too. How do those two things support each other or kind of how don't they support each other, if that question makes sense? No, yeah, Um I actually really like reading the content. It's funny because I realized that I don't, I didn't realize that I DM'd or planned my games differently until I read a lot of published content and realized that's super not how I think (laughs) when I'm designing a game. Um, But I love reading them because they so often have these little moments that you can steal and just stick in your game or these characters or, you know, it's, it's full of ideas. It's full of jumping off points. And I think it's really nice if you don't, it's nice to read them and not have to hold yourself to 
you know, the linear notion that some of them have. Um, so you can be like, oh, I want to take this part and drop it into my game here. Or, you know, I'll reference this part because I know this player has played that game in a different with a different DM and it'll be funny for them or something. Mm -hmm. Right. So you can you can weave in bits and pieces without having to take the whole. I do think it's it's interesting because to me, they feel very linear mm -hmm. um, and very guided. And I feel like it's for me, I'm very sandbox. I'm, I mean, Skyrim really is that I mentioned that game sure. so much because that is kind of like my ideal game. And it's kind of how I think about it in that. The world is there, and there are things happening, and they'll happen, happen whether you interact with them or not. Um, and so it's how are you going to interact with that given, given the world and given the situation mm -hmm. um, versus, like, I think a more linear plot, which is very much about this is the plot. It waits for you to a certain extent. Yeah, I think, and even some of the language you used earlier describing kind of your perspective on – uh, DMing is, I think he kind of used the phrase like spider web or scenarios, mm -hmm. and that seems like the exact opposite of this more linear, okay, here's chapter one, two, three, four, and the PCs go here, and then they do this, and then they end up here. And I think in some ways for newer DMs, that's an easier approach to get into DMing. Mm -hmm. It seems like that's what a lot of the published content, um, even the DMs guide and some other things kind of push mm -hmm. you towards. But your background was was different, where you started on the the homebrew end, and I wonder what materials do you think are out there to help people do that approach, do the more homebrew campaign <laughs> approach. I think the thing that I mean, I didn't have, I didn't find any materials when I was when I was a kid to help, but I did have a DM. But, you know, my DM helps me. Like, I remember calling him on the phone and being like, oh, my God, the players don't do what I want them to. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> and he was like, well, funny thing about players. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Welcome, welcome so to think, the DM chair. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and so I think, like, you know, the best resource you can possibly have is another DM who, uh, who homebrews, mm -hmm. right? Someone who's done it. Um, because I think uh, that's just... There's so there's it's such a different way of thinking um, when you homebrew, and I think the it, the instinct is to put too much work into it. Um, and if you really enjoy doing that work, that's great. But it can also burn you out really fast. And so I think it's important to have someone also be there to tell you, uh, oh, there was a book I read recently or an audiobook I had recently from a DM um, that was talking about basically the shortcuts you can take when you're designing your game. Okay. Um, if I could remember that, I just I read it for a podcast. It's another famous Twitter DM person. Okay. Do you... Um, it's the Lazy DM. Oh, yeah, Mike Shea. Sure. I spoke yeah, with him he, uh, several weeks weeks ago. He was on episode one, actually, of this show. So. Oh, yeah. awesome. Yeah, he had a great guide that I actually really agreed with on terms of like how to shortcut when you're designing. And, you know, I think that it could be taken... You could. It's a great guide for beginners to homebrew because when you come up with a town... You don't need to come up with absolutely everything. You need to come up with like three adjectives that kind of nail it down. And then it's really easy to come up with things from there, right? Like, to be fair, I actually do come up with some stuff ahead of time just to make sure it's different or aligns with wherever it is. But, it, you know, you can have like, okay, pirate, moon festival, and perfumery, right? right? And then you have a town based on those sure. things. And it's going to be unique because you haven't done it before. And, you know, it already gives you so much feel just based on that. Um, and so, like, 
his whole thing is about ways to shorthand designing. And I think that was a really good resource. I think for me, another resource was reading books because like, remember, it's your home game. You're not publishing it. So you can steal whatever you want from books in order to make interesting scenarios or interesting world stuff. Um, and if a player really likes it, you can direct them to the book series. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I, I like that approach of, like, for me, one of the things that trips me up at the table is, like, if a play, players reach a new town or something and they want to mm-hmm. go, to, like, usually they want to hit a shop, an inn, or talk to the mayor or go to a, a, a temple or something like that. So just having an idea of names and having a list of possible names, like, oh, yeah, you go to this inn and just have it written down oh. <laughs> ahead of time. Cause that's the thing where I'll literally, I'll, I'll sit there at the table and I'll be thinking for 20, 30 seconds of, okay, what do I name this place? So just, so I, just thinking of some names ahead of time is really helpful. I have a secret for you. I made a, um, random tavern name generator. Yes. I saw that. Uh, yeah. And I actually, so I couldn't, I didn't want to post this, but I actually, uh, automated it in Excel and it's really easy to do if you use macros so that it creates it randomly so that I can just hit it when I need one. <laughs> yeah, I think it was I, I had played around with it a few weeks ago and on Twitter I posted some of the results. It was one was like the scurvy spider or something. It was like some really fun combinations. Yeah, there uh I feel like the funnier that's one area I'm not too serious in, but the funnier the title, the more fun it is to imagine like what in the world does this bar look like? Right. So, but yeah, Mike, Mike has some good strategies. I think for just like you said, coming up with, like, what does this person want to do? What's their goal? And what's their personality? And then you can just sort of wing it from there. Though I do think it, like shorthanding it with if you know characters really well from books or movies or TV or video games, really reskinning them can create some of you. They'll change as you act them out and everything, right? But it'll really create some more depth to your characters, even like your mooks. If you have like a couple of some of the, my favorite combat encounters have been like totally random things that I just happened to pick really funny characters to base the mooks on. Right. Or really interesting. And it create like they can get really players can get really interested even in those characters. If you give them good personalities. Yeah. And change the name of the character. Cause if you do have players who are real familiar with that book, it's like, Oh, I know who the, exactly who oh, this person yeah. is. I may, no, absolutely. I made that mistake years ago because I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for A Knight's Tale. And uh-huh. uh, basically the villain in that movie is this guy named Adamar. And I named this character who was supposed to be was supposed to be a little bit of a mystery if he was a good guy or a bad guy. And like two mm-hmm. players in my group are like, oh, I know what you're going with with this guy. And I was like, ah, damn it. I should have yeah. changed his name. But I think stealing from published adventures, uh, borrowing from movies, from TV shows, from books that – it's just a great way to throw things into your own campaign, mash them together, and make something new. Oh, even just people—people people you know or have run into. Like I had a really terrible customer experience, uh, customer service experience, and the person I was talking to obviously became a villain, right? Huh. Like, you know, you can just draw from everything around you. If you're frustrated at work, hey, you've got instant mooks as long as they're not recognizable by your players, yes. right? So and. <laughs> You know, one of the, one of the things we were going, you know, back and forth through through email, you know, getting ready to uh, have the interview. You were talking about how, you know, homebrewing and appealing to different types of players kind of brings or expands the player base. And I wonder if you could, you know, speak more about that here on the show. Um, well, I think part of it is that uh, I guess my player experience growing up, it was never the groups that were kind of the target audience. Uh, for one thing, we were almost all women. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were all, 
I guess it it does aim young, but like you know, it was from like upper elementary school all the way through high school and everything. Uh, and our interests were not so much like get it actually weirdly was not get treasure and kill monsters like that was not what we were interested in almost everyone i played with you know at that point like you end up with a menagerie right because people want to like they have they have different goals if they find a baby red dragon they want to try and tame it right mm -hmm. or if you have if they find an npc they want to they want to talk to them not fight them they want to so i ended up with these groups that wanted really social games and so it was almost more what i ended up doing was taking like um you know those murder mystery party things sure. you, you take kind of the structure or idea from those and kind of meld them into D D, and you've got a really interesting complex npc scenario where they're trying to figure things out as events happen and as they get to talk to npcs but it's not based on them trying to kill things and it's not based on them uh, you know, getting treasure. And that actually really fit the personality type of my players, because when I tried to have them, like, get involved in the fighting, a lot of them were just not interested and didn't want to play. Um, and so, I was, you know, going that direction. But then again, like, if you have groups that really hate the talking, you can really uh, put it towards them. And, you know, one of the things, this has changed very largely, but back when I was a kid, a lot of the games were very focused on rescuing the lady and you know, romancing the women and things. And so it was actually, you know, being as that we were like in elementary school and middle school, this was not actually our greatest desire. Uh, <laughs> um, imag <laughs> imagine that. Imagine that. Yeah. Because we were like a little confused. I think that all the like sexual innuendo just went straight over our heads. Mm. So, you know, able to focus on games around what you're interested in, it really does expand the player, expands the player base. And how do you think that, aspect of it has changed if at all over the years of you know kind of appealing to the i mean stereotypical white male like that's what game that's who gaming is for well it's funny because i've always enjoyed playing the games that were for the stereotypical white male like you know it's not like i didn't i love playing all those video games and everything i do think it all went over my head like the cover of arena i don't know if you remember but like the amount of persuasion i had to do to my mom to let her like let me play that game. I had to swear there were no naked women in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, so, I mean, that's definitely changed. There aren't naked women on the covers of our books in strappy thongs uh, anymore for the most part. Um, and almost everything's equal opportunity in terms of like that I, that I've been reading is equal opportunity in terms of like the romance and the rescuing. And a lot of times it's gotten away from the rescue situations, uh, the things that I've been reading as well, which is really nice because I think that that, I mean, that's a scenario, but it's only, it's a overused scenario, mm -hmm. right? There's so many other things to do in D and D aside from rescue. And by um, the way, as you were talking there, I just, I Googled the elder scrolls arena cover and mm -hmm. I, I encourage everyone who's listening to, <laughs> Not if they're driving. Don't do it while you're driving. But uh, when you're at a computer, just to Google that, um, it's it's pretty eye-opening. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, that that was hard to convince my mom that I should be allowed to play that. And I'm not even a boy. If I was a boy, it would have been impossible, I'm sure. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I it's uh, I it's not even a bikini. I don't even know what's going on there. Uh, it's some kind of shoelaces. Yeah, yeah. There's dental floss involved. Yeah. So, but also you have games like uh, I think there was just an article from D and D on how they're trying to go more equal opportunity on that stuff, and like Numenera is incredibly uh, open and uh, on that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And I mean, Numenera also does very character focused uh, 
gaming. It's uh, rather than kind of plot focused. And I do think that's part of it is that even the linear plots have gotten more open and gotten more into scenarios. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it sounds like you feel that like things are moving in a better direction. Yeah, I mean, it used to be sometimes that it's like, well, you know, I'd run across a game where I'd want to play and I'd realize that it hinged on you having a male character because it would say, you know, this character, this NPC seduces the male character, mm-hmm. right? Um, one of the male characters and I'd have all lady characters and it would be like, OK, well, you know, we just had a lot of ladies seducing ladies in our games okay. uh, when we would do that, because what else are you going to do? Right. But like when things depend on having guys, it can be problematic if you don't have them. And that's from a you know from a game design perspective. You know, I was talking with uh, Teo Sabadia about this uh, several weeks ago, of designing so there's more space for different gender pairings, or not just kind of assuming that certain characters are going to be male or female, but or certain races, and being willing to be flexible with that. Yeah, I think that um, the more you're willing to like just stretch and do whatever the better in terms of that, the better it's going to work out because you never know what the makeup of your group's going to be. And if you have a lot of kids, they're not going to be interested in the seduction part anyway. Like, I don't know. I used to do pickup games at a local game store. And like, you know, as soon as the parents found out it was basically free childcare, it became all nine year olds. Uh, (laughs) The seduction thing was not happening. I felt creepy even like reading the text. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So you, you suddenly redesign a lot of things. I I wonder what, what differences uh, for you, um, as a writer and an editor, what is it like working for like a company like Wizards of the Coast and then for something that seems a little bit more like independent, like uh, working for Monte Cook Games? What, How has that been different or is it the same? Um, well, I, freelan- I used to work in-house for Wizards for like six mm-hmm. years and then I freelanced for them up until about this year. Monte Cook Games I've only freelanced for. Um, and so for uh, – you're talking about the difference between working for them. I'd say – um, Money Cook Games really wants me to focus on the story elements when I'm editing. So I'm editing for story and character and plot and, uh, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. Whereas, like, with Wizards of the Coast, a large part of my job was also continuity. So I would be constantly checking with the game masters and checking with uh, – not game masters, sorry, the designers and checking with the people who are doing, like, the Living FR stuff and check, checking all over the place to see it, who was working on what and when the timelines were and whether everything would work out. There was a lot more research involved. I would sometimes – you'd spend a whole day just researching mm-hmm. things uh, to check them in your stories. And, of course, you also had to do the characters and the plot and everything. And I think part of the difference there is that Monty Cook Games – I mean, the people who are writing the books are the people who are also writing the novels. Mm-hmm. I mean, sorry, the RPGs okay. right now. And so – Obviously, they know all that, and I'll still check for continuity within them, and like I'll make a list of all the words that they use and everything. But I'm not going to correct them in the same way I would like, oh, by the way, 30 years ago, this thing happened in FR that you need to take into account um, that I would do at Wizards. So I'd say, I mean, the main difference is in terms of my focus. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I think there's... I mean, I'm certainly not well-versed in it, but there's got to be, what, hundreds of Forgotten Realms books by now? To, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. That can just make things very uh, convoluted, I imagine, from an editing standpoint. Well, and it would get weird because they would contradict each other, and you wouldn't know which should take precedence. Okay. Um, and sometimes there would be a little known fact that, like, the greater fan base didn't know about that was, like, in some book 
randomly some novel from like 20 years ago. And so it would contradict kind of the head canon of the audience. And then you had to decide if you were going to go with canon canon or if you're going to go with head canon, like which is more important. Um, and sometimes you would get these changes in the system. That's the other difference between Wizards of the Coast. With Wizards of the Coast, I was there with 3.5 and then I was there with 4. And so the things that change between editions can be really difficult uh, when you're an editor for novel line, because novel lines are like two years out when you're working on them, because you work on the outline and then they take like six months to a year to write the book and then you have the revisions and then it finally mm -hmm. comes out. Um, and RPGs are, are a tighter turnaround and online stuff is way tighter. And they end up changing things like, you know, are succubi uh, demons or devils? And do angels have mouths or feet? And, you know, uh, suddenly elves don't have... Uh, any, they just have the color in their eyes. They don't have a pupil and they don't have the, um, the white part either. And so it's like, if you're, it's fine if you're a DM, you can just be like, oh, you know, this is the new way they look. Um, but if you're writing a novel, we were in the middle, for instance, with the angels, we were in the middle of Thomas Reed's trilogy, the Empyrean Odyssey. Uh, and it's all about angels. It takes place pretty much exclusively in the, in the heavenly realms, okay. right? And so you've got, uh, all these angels that all of a sudden aren't supposed to have like feet or mouths, and so we're like, all right, we just have <laughs> to we have to set this before the shift because yeah, it's you can't just take away your main characters' mouths and legs without an explanation. And similarly, when the demons, when the succubus became uh, went back and forth between demons and devils, we also had to come in with in game in book reasons uh, that that happens because they happen to be like featured in several of the novels at that time. Yeah, it's just fascinating to, to hear your perspective on that. I just wrote uh, something on my site yesterday about watching Rogue One and how that lines up with 30 years of assumptions of watching A New Hope. And, <laughs> yes. I, and I was just like, I kind of went line by line, a very nerdy thing going like through the begin first like five, 10 minutes of A New Hope and seeing, okay, Rogue One just happened a few hours ago in this world. Does everything line up? And I was thinking mm -hmm. of the, the group of people who are in charge of making sure everything lines up and just kind of empathizing with them, being like, wow, what a challenging job to have to deal with fans like me and more more <laughs> angry people than me to like make sure all those assumptions for the most part line up. And it sounds like trying to do that in this world that's been around for, again, decades and there's hundreds of books. It sounds like quite a chore for you. Well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting because part of it is that, and this is, part of it's that, like, people will throw away details and not realize they're important so they won't get recorded. Like, there was an author who decided that the spell plague smelled like oranges. And so, all of a sudden, like, that's actually a thing. And if you don't mention it, that's, like, that's super weird because it smells like oranges. So, you know, if you're just sitting there and there's a strong orange smell and you're in the middle of, like, a desert or something it would be weird not to mention it. And so there's a lot like, for instance, not mentioning elves suddenly not having whites to their eyes. Like there are a lot, you have to have a story reason. You have to weave it in and you have to re remember that every throwaway detail that's just fun for say a designer or a novelist, you actually have to record and keep track of. Yeah. Wow. Knowing, knowing what's important, I think is the hard part is like figuring out where to look for a detail and figuring out what kinds of details you need to record or remember. And that that in some ways ties into my 
into my brain about you know when you're talking about homebrewing and preparing adventures for the players, you know, a select group of players, like what's going to be important to them? Mm-hmm. And now you have this more massive audience who's consuming these novels and they love this world and they know different things about them, but something that's very important to reader one is might not matter to reader two and vice versa. Mm. Yeah, everyone's very passionate, but a lot of people have different opinions on what they're passionate about or what should happen or what the truth is of various situations. It's definitely tricky because I think there are, there's also the call of do you do you go with every change or do you stay traditional in some ways? On like a super geeky level, like we had that we have this debate about or back when I worked with wizards, we'd have this debate all the time because they would change how they would write, say, longsword. Okay. Right. And like, is there a space or not sure. in between? And so are you going with can like the history of canon of the books or are you going with what's current in the RPGs? Another one is priestess versus priest or goddess versus god. Are we still because the books have always done goddess like Mistra is a goddess. Right. But. If it changes to be God in the RPG, do we just say, well, Mistra the God? Um, or do we keep like the culture of the realms the same as it was? Uh, so there's a lot of tricky questions like that. But yeah, it's absolutely the same. In ter- <laughs> to get back to your point, it's absolutely the same as uh, when you're trying to homebrew and you're trying to figure out, okay, what are my players going to be interested in versus like, you know, what is the audience going to be interested in for a novel? Like what details are important? What will they grab onto? Like smell. Right. Readers really grab onto smell. It's super important to remember that if you, <laughs> if you suddenly insert smells somewhere. Well, I think it's one of those, like, you know, there, I've read articles in the past about being a DM and like, you know, using all five senses to describe things. Mm-hmm. And I think smell is one of those ones that gets overlooked by a lot of us, including me. So if you're reading something or you're in a situation where the DM mentions a smell or the author mentions a smell, it's like, oh, that's probably important to know. Right. And I think the smell, I, you know, I think smell is actually one of the most effective methods for engaging player memory, even though it's not a real smell. Like, I've heard that real smells are good mm-hmm. for that. But um, And they add so much flavor. Like, if something is really smelly, you will get, like, a visceral reaction out of your player's in a way that I haven't seen with blood in <laughs> years, right? <laughs> They've seen blood forever, you know, yeah. But if you can describe, if you can actually think about, like, don't just say it really stinks, right? But if you can actually think about, all right, so it smells like, you know, a week old fish that's been sitting in the sun and cottage cheese that's gone bad or rancid and something sour and slightly sweet or something. Like, you know, you can, you can come up with something that's just going to get under your player's mm-hmm. skin and make them react in a more visceral way than they otherwise yeah, would. Yeah, I think it makes them start asking questions or that kind of channels into their assumptions of, well, what does it mean when a hallway smells like sour milk? Like, right, what's exactly. coming my way? What do we need to prepare for? As opposed to like, well, there's this dank hallway. And it's like, oh, we've right. been in a million dank hallways. Sure, okay. If you always give them the clues that they could figure things out, then they'll actually play in a very investigative way, which I think is really fun. I was curious, you know, shifting gears a little bit, just um, be, being a, an editor, working professionally as an editor, what like what does that entail exactly? Yeah, so well, while I worked at Wizards of the Coast, um, it's a it's kind of different job than working as an editor for Monty Cook Games or uh, independently for author clients or publisher clients. Um, but, for instance, let's take Wizards of the Coast as the base. With Wizards of the Coast as an editor, uh, you kind of do the acquiring, the developmental editing, 
and uh, the proofreading and everything. So what most people think of when they hear an editor is proofreading and copy editing, which is grammar and spelling. That's not actually my primary responsibility uh, as an editor at Wizards of the Coast or at Money Cook Games mm-hmm. or anywhere. My primary responsibility is to make sure that the book is good. Um, and so that means the author puts their heart and soul into this book for six months to a year, and they're so close to it at that point that they can't tell what's good and they can't tell what's bad. And so it's my job to kind of trace through all the lines of that book, um, both for the plot line and in terms of the world and in terms of the themes, the characters, uh, everything, and figure out, like, you know, could I make magnify one of the themes if they adjusted this thing mm-hmm. here? Or is one of the characters act, you know, do the characters act in character or out of character? Do all the characters that are point of view characters have arcs? Uh, like, do they have some kind of thing in which they change? Uh, and that affects the outcome of the book in some way. Um, and then you also work on things like the, act, the actual writing. Like, are there any points that get slow or drag? Are there any points that... Um, don't actually tie into the plot line and so are extraneous. And you work with, uh, at Watsi, you would work with the authors on the outline level, so they would submit like an idea um, and you would pick the ideas that you wanted to work with and then they would submit an outline and it would be chapter by chapter and everything and then you would actually see you would give feedback on both of those and of course you'd also coordinate with the RPG team to make sure that the feedback incorporated like what RPG is doing. Um, and then you would go over the first draft. And the first draft, you're not looking at line by line at all, pretty much, unless there's major issues. Um, you're largely just looking at plot, character, story, this kind of thing. And continuity, right? So, like, if someone makes some assumptions about the goddess Shar and, like, her history or her followers or her aims, especially, like, uh, in the last couple arcs for FR, Shar had like a major plot arc, right? And so you want to make sure that she's consistent through all the books and that that doesn't suddenly change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you're looking for all that kind of thing. And then you get the second draft, and the second draft is where you're looking more on a line-by-line level. And so you go through and you do spot checks for things that don't fit on the same level as before in terms of character, plot, and uh, theme. But you also look for, like, you know, do any parts need tightening? Are any parts confusing? You try and help like the, the authors figure out how to polish the prose as much as possible. Then you send it to a copy editor who goes over the um, grammar and the spelling, and then you check it over again. You check in all of those comments and you know apply the ones that make sense and say no to the ones that don't make sense. Uh, they're paid to be incredibly literal, mm-hmm. and so they will apply the CMS rigorously, the Chicago Manual mm-hmm. of Style. Uh, but sometimes an author, it's better if you break the rule. And so it's the editor's job, the developmental editor's job, to decide when when those should be ignored. And if you have any that you have a question about, you send it to the author to get their opinion. Uh, and then you send it to a proofreader who just does, like, the basic spelling, looking for typos, that kind of thing. Uh, and same thing, you check it in. Then it goes to typesetting. Uh, and they then they typeset the book. It looks really pretty. You can see how it'll look in the layout. Then you go over it one last time as a thorough read to look for any proofreading stuff yourself. Uh, and then you're about wow, done with it. Sounds very intense. And I think. Yeah, you and read I, it appre- a lot. I appreciate you going into that detail because I think a lot of people, when they see like editor and see someone's name, and I think they think of it as just like the first maybe two sentences you said of, well, 
someone writes something and then you get it and proofread and organize it a little bit, but it, it's much more intensive th- than that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, no, go ahead, please. Oh, I was going to say, there's a lot of like back and forth with the authors too. I mean, it depends on the author. Some authors will take that outline and then you won't hear from them again until it's time to turn it in. Uh, and then others will email you or call you all the time to bounce an idea off you. Um, maybe like, oh, what if I did this instead? Or how about this? And, you know, so it's like it's a very different process depending on the author in question. And what, so what do you think about because now with um, multiple platforms and avenues for writers to get their work out there, uh, whether it's novels, self-publishing or even like like D&D or any really kind of role playing game adventure, I could sit here over the next couple of days, write something up and put it out on a website and say, here's my, here's my work, uh, download it or, you know, pay what you want, et cetera. Like how should people be editing their work? Like what, what are some strategies people might be able to do to, to get that kind of feedback and support? Well, I think it depends on what your goals are. If your goal is literally just to share something that you did and you don't really care about, you know, trying to make it professional quality or trying to make sure that it's as clean as possible, then, you know, you can just share what you did. If you actually want to make something that is of a professional quality or that is at least clean and readable, there's a couple options. I think the easiest one is to get a crit group. So if you're talking novels in particular, um, I would definitely get a critique group, which is a bunch of people who write and they help edit each other. And you can go to the level that you care about. But, you know, this is talking mostly about that developmental level feedback. Um, and so you'll send them your book or you'll send them your game or whatever, and they will tell you any major issues they found with it, character, plot, world, uh, structure, anything like that. And then you get it back and you mm-hmm. can fix it. You can also try and find a crit partner who will do, or an editing partner who will actually like proofread your manuscript for you and you'll do the same for them. But when I guess if you were trying to do a professional level product, I would also then hire at least a copy editor uh, to go through and do spelling and grammar. And you want to, if you can't, you have to know how to do typesetting, like either figure it out or hire someone to do that for you because you want it to be readable in its layout and design. Uh, And so that actually is a skill set that people often forget about. It is worth, in terms of the number of people you need to hire to make a truly professional product, it's more than Mm -hmm. you'd think. But I think you can get away with a crit group and a copy editor as long as your crit group is actually really good when it comes to developmental editing. Okay. Yeah. It's not a direction I'm going in anytime soon, but I imagine some people listening are like trying to put their own ideas out there. And I think there's so many – I think there's fewer barriers to to getting your own ideas out there, but I think it can be tough to be recognized in the sea of all the content that's swimming around right now. Well, I think for sure right now the problem is discoverability. There is no discoverability uh, because so much is out there. Like self-published books, originally when they first started coming out, you could actually find things. But now you're never – unless you have a name, like people aren't going to find you. Uh, So that's definitely an issue. I think that – we're starting to develop tools to help us find things. But, yeah, that's that's the major issue is how to get people to read it. If you don't care if people read it, it's much easier. <laughs> Just write into a void over and over again. Well, I do think writing for yourself is the most important mm-hmm. part. And what do you mean by that exactly? Well, I think that, you know, there's – especially in terms of a career – If you're not writing for yourself, you're going to be very disappointed long term. I think you will need to write things that you love and that you enjoy. And then you can you can share them with other people. But the enjoyment should come from the writing and from doing it for yourself. 
everything else should be kind of secondary or you're very dependent on other people's opinions for your happiness and fulfillment, which I think is never a good way to go. Writing as it is has very few moments in which you get uh, reinforcement or no one tells you good job, right? That's just not part of it. So you get it like at publication, you get it if you get bought by a publisher. Um, but if you're doing it all on your own, you're not even going to get that. So I think it's important to kind of do this for yourself and anything else you get is bonus. And that way you're happy while writing and you're happy with what you put out, uh, even if only 20 people look at it, say. Yeah, that's and it. It seems like a juxtaposition, but maybe it's not of, you know, writing for yourself and not looking for that kind of uh, extrinsic uh, reward. And as a DM, kind of maybe writing for yourself and your own ideas, but trying to engage other players and get that type of feedback. I mean, it's different roles, but it's kind of an interesting difference there. Well, I think it's like, I feel like when you're DMing, it's like you're giving them a present. Hmm. And when you give someone a present, you try and figure out what they'd like, but you also get something that you would like because it's a connection between you. So an ideal gift is something that you would both enjoy and so that you can see it as like a line that connects you. And so a game is like the same way. You're trying to do things you enjoy, but that are also things that your players will enjoy. So you create these connections between you that strengthen your bond and strengthen the game. Cool. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to put it. Well, I, I know we've been running a little long here, so but I just wanted to absolutely thank you for your time that you shared with me here this evening. I wonder um, kind of what's coming up for you in the future. What plans do you have? Oh, well, I'm continuing to edit. I really enjoy that. I um, think I'm going to probably hopefully do that for the rest <laughs> of my life. Uh, I am also just finished a manuscript that's currently with my agent. So oh, here's excellent. hoping that uh, she ends up liking it. It's actually – it's based on a world that came from the game I run, actually. Okay, so is um, any kind of teaser but, details you can share with us? or uh, It's a dark political fantasy, but, uh, you know, it's so early because there's so many things that could go wrong. Okay. I don't want, <laughs> don't want to say more Certainly. than that. And how can people uh, find you if they have uh, questions or want to contact you online? What's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, SusanJMorris.com is my website, or I'm at SusanJMorris on Twitter. So that's probably the easiest. Fantastic. Um, well, thank you again so much for uh, talking about not only homebrewing, but the editing process and really, you know, appealing to a diverse set of players. Uh, I really think people are going to benefit from some of those ideas that you shared. Well, great. Thanks so much yeah, for having me. It. Have a great night. Bye.